Hey, this is Joseph Thompson. Thanks for listening to the Open Spaces podcast. Why don't you sit back, relax, and join me as we take a journey together into wide open spaces. Uh, Last week, we began a two-part series uh, that I'm calling The Messy Middle. So if you missed last week's uh, broadcast, I'd encourage you to listen to it before tuning in to today's podcast so that you can follow along and um, stay uh, ahead of the story. So just a quick recap on where we began last week. If you remember, uh, I stated that life, particularly for the Christ follower, is lived for the most part in the middle of God's promises. I explained that the beginning of the journey towards the promise is easy. Because at the beginning, that's when you feel like you've heard God so clearly that every objection, every obstacle in the way of accomplishing your dream pales to insignificance. And in that season, you're running with horses and the vision breathes energy and life into you. I stated that at the end, it's often just as fulfilling as the beginning, if not more so, because Uh, The end is the actualization of the dreams that you've had and the fulfillment of the promise of God. But in between the beginning and the end is the messy middle, where there's betrayal, false accusations, deception, and every conceivable hurt that threatens to derail your dreams. And we began a case study looking at the life of Joseph, the prince of Egypt. And we talked about how the beginning of his journey was filled with dreams of people bowing down before him. His father's favorite child, he never missed an opportunity to let everyone know he was destined for greatness. And the end of his story sees him as the second most powerful man in the then known world. And in the words of Pharaoh, who was the then most powerful man in the world? And the the person who actually places Joseph in his position of authority Pharaoh declares, from now on, you're in charge of my affairs. All my people will report to you. Only as king will I be over you. So Pharaoh commissioned Joseph, I'm putting you in charge of the entire country of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his finger and slipped it on Joseph's hand. He outfitted him in robes of the best linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He put the second-in-command chariot at his disposal. And as he rode, people shouted, Bravo! Joseph was in charge of the entire country of Egypt. And Pharaoh told Joseph, I am Pharaoh. But no one in Egypt will make a single move without your stamp of approval. This is in Genesis 41. So this is the end of Joseph's story. Keep in mind that that morning he woke up a prisoner. And that evening he was the second most powerful man on earth. But in the middle of his story, he couldn't have encountered more pain, false accusations, hardship. Heck, he was imprisoned because he conducted himself with integrity towards Potiphar's wife. He couldn't have encountered more suffering. In other words, it couldn't have been any messier. But somehow, in the middle of Joseph's story, we take a sudden turn and an unexpected diversion into Judah's story. 
So last week, we left the story with Judah volunteering to take Benjamin back to Egypt at Joseph's request in order to free Simeon from Joseph's prison. Not Judah, nor any of his other brothers even suspect that this prince of Egypt is their baby brother the same one whom they treated with such disregard and disdain. In fact, disregard enough that they sold him to a caravan of slave traders without even a second thought. And Judah, this same Judah, was the chief protagonist of this mission with the words, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Now this Judah declares to his father, send the boy with me in reference to Benjamin, and we will be on our way. Otherwise, we will all die of starvation. And not only we, but you and our little ones. I personally guarantee his safety. You may hold me responsible if I don't bring him back to you. Then let me bear the blame forever. Genesis 43, verses 8 and 9. I'm astounded by Judah's turnaround, by his willingness to sacrifice himself to save their family from the famine, his newfound humility and selfless service. But you see, none of it is without reason, because Judah too has had a messy middle. After Joseph's abduction, Judah goes on to have three sons, and he arranges for his eldest son to marry a girl named Tamar. But shortly into the marriage, his son dies. Following the cultural protocol of his day, Judah arranges for his second son to marry Tamar. This son doesn't manage the situation well, and he too dies. I know, right? I mean, this sounds worse than a modern-day soap opera. And Judah now assumes Tamar is jinxed. Afraid that his third son might meet the same fate, Judah puts the matter on hold, leaving Tamar husbandless and alone to fend for herself. But later on, Judah's wife dies. And Tamar hears that Judah is coming to town. Apparently, she hasn't been able to get Judah to reply to any of her emails, so she gets pretty creative. She disguises herself as a prostitute, and makes him an offer, an offer that is too difficult for this unsatiated man uh, to refuse. Judah takes the bait. He exchanges his neck chain and his walking stick for sex, and unaware that he's sleeping with his erstwhile daughter-in-law. You see, because lust does have a habit of blinding a man. She becomes pregnant. Three months later, She appears in Judah's life as Tamar, a very pregnant Tamar. Judah, at first, goes all high and mighty on her and demands that she be burned for getting pregnant without a husband. And that's when she produces Judah's neck chain and walking stick and politely but coyly explains to Judah that the child is his. So caught in his own sin and disgraced in front of his own family, Things for Judah have come full circle. Judah, the Judah who had deceived Jacob, his father, about Joseph's demise, was now himself deceived. 
The Judah who had trapped Joseph was himself trapped. Judah, Judah who had helped humiliate Joseph, now finds himself humiliated. In the middle of his story, God graciously allows Judah an eye-opening and humbling experience. And Judah finally comes to his senses. His words, she has been more righteous than I, he finally confesses in Genesis 38, verse 26. Friends, I've often wondered why Judah's exploits were included in this Joseph narrative, especially since they seem to interrupt everything, because Joseph's story begins in chapter 37 of the book of Genesis and goes all the way to chapter 50. And so as we just get started in chapter 37 with the dreams and the drama of Joseph, the narrative suddenly takes a turn in chapter 38 to the story of Judah. Judah the hustler and Tamar the faux lady of leisure, shall we say. Two dead husbands, one clever widow, an odd and seemingly poorly placed story. But you know, now as I look in perspective, I see how the story fits. You see, for anything good to happen to Jacob's family, someone in his clan had to grow up. If it was not going to be Jacob himself, then one of Joseph's brothers had to mature to the point where he took responsibility for his actions. And for some reason, God chose to make the change in Judah. He gave Judah a taste of his own medicine, and the medicine worked. Judah championed the family's cause. He spoke sense into his father's head. He was willing to take responsibility for Benjamin's safety and to bear the blame if he failed. Judah got his wake-up call, and Joseph didn't have to do a thing to make it happen. Do you remember Romans 12? We read that last week. Vengeance is God's. He will repay, whether ultimately on the day of judgment or immediately in this life. So what's the point of the story? It's this, that God handles all Judas. God can discipline your abusive boss. He can soften the hearts of your angry parents. He can bring your ex to his knees or to her senses. Forgiveness doesn't diminish justice. It simply entrusts it to God. God guarantees the right retribution. We, as humans, either give too much or too little. But the God of justice has the perfect, precise prescription. And unlike you and I, God never gives up on a person, ever. You see, long after we've abandoned people in the middle of their messy middle or the messy middle of their story, God is still there. Aren't you grateful for that? Because that guarantees that he's in the middle of your messy middle and my messy middle. He's still there probing our consciences, stirring conviction, always orchestrating redemption. So you want to fix your enemies? Well, that's God's responsibility. But forgive your enemies? Now that's where you and I come in. We forgive. 
In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, the Bible says it like this, Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. I like that. But in case you didn't know, the word translated opportunity is the Greek word topos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but that doesn't really matter, because what matters is what it means. You see, topos is the same term from which we, which we get the English noun topography. It means territory or ground. I find that fascinating. I don't know about you. You see, anger gives territory that you own over to the devil, the enemy of your soul. Bitterness invites him to occupy space in your heart, to rent a room for free. Believe me, he will move in and he'll stink up the place. Gossip, slander, rage, unforgiveness. Anytime you see these, you know that Satan has claimed a bunk. So what are we called to do in the messy middle? We're, we're called to evict him by beginning the process of forgiveness. By, according to the scriptures, keeping no list or record of wrongs. We're called to pray for our antagonists rather than plot against them. Hate the wrong without hating wrongdoers. Turn our attention away from what they did to us to what Jesus did for us. And as unbelievable as it may seem in our messy middle, Jesus died for them too. Those very ones who seem to be the source of our pain, our frustration, our bitterness, our anger. And I would say if he thinks they're worth forgiving, they are. But does that make forgiveness easy? Absolutely not. Does it mean forgiveness must be quick? It seldom is. Is forgiveness painless? Well, it certainly wasn't for Joseph. Here's the rest of his story, having finished Judah's story in glorious technicolor. So the brothers returned to Egypt from Canaan with Benjamin in tow, and Joseph invites them to a dinner. He asks about Jacob, and he spots Benjamin, and all but comes undone. God be gracious to you, my son, he blurts, before he hurries out of the room to weep. Think about those words. God be gracious to you, my son. Genesis 43, 29. Eventually, when he's composed himself, Joseph returns to eat and drink and make merry with his brothers. And here's what's interesting, according to the scriptures. Joseph seats them according to their birth order. I wonder if they marveled at how he could know that. I wonder if any sense of suspicion began to stir in them. Whatever the case, they didn't indicate that. He singles out Benjamin for special treatment during the dinner, the celebration, and every time the brothers got one helping, Benjamin got five. And of course, they notice this, but they say nothing. They've lived that all their lives. That's what their father, after all, did with Joseph and, and them. He singled Joseph out for preferential treatment. Uh, finally, at the end of dinner, Joseph loads their sacks with food, and he hides his personal cup in Benjamin's sack. 
And so the brothers are barely down the road a bit, a bit when Joseph's stewards stop their caravan. They search their sacks, and of course, they find the cup in Benjamin's sack. And the brothers tear their clothes, which is basically the ancient equivalent of pulling out one's hair. And soon they find themselves right back in front of Joseph in desperate fear for their lives. Clearly, Joseph couldn't make up his mind. He'd welcomed them into his home, wept over them, eaten with them, and then played a trick on them. Joseph was clearly at war within himself. This journey towards forgiveness is so terribly difficult in the messy middle. These brothers, unknown to them, had peeled the scab off his oldest and deepest wound. And he would be hanged before he'd let them do it again. But on the other hand, these were his brothers and he would be hanged before he lost them again. You see, my friends, forgiveness vacillates like this. It has fits and starts, good days and bad. Anger intermingled with love, irregular mercy. We make progress only to make a wrong turn. We step forward, then take a few steps back. But believe it or not, my friends, this is okay. You see, when it comes to forgiveness, we're all beginners. Just like being parents, there are no professional forgivers. We're all learning on the job in the process. No one owns a secret formula. And as long as you're trying to forgive, then you are forgiving. It's when you no longer try that bitterness sets in. So in the messy middle, my friends, stay the course. We'll spend less time in the house of spite if we choose to spend more time in the house of grace. And as one who has walked the hallways of both, I can guarantee that you are going to love the space of grace. Because this is the messy middle where we spend the majority of our lives. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us on the Open Spaces podcast. If you enjoyed it, then please like it and share it with your friends. We'd really love to connect with you. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at the Open Spaces Podcast. Yeah.